This is Divorce Happy Hour, a show about divorce and issues people face going through divorce. Your co-hosts are Christina Previtt and John Nocklinger. For more information about the show and to connect with us, head over to divorcehappyhour.com. And now, on to today's show. Today, we're going to talk about cultural issues in divorce and how to overcome them. Welcome back to the show. My name is John Nocklinger, the men's divorce coach and mentor. I am the co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a divorce and family law firm in central New Jersey, where I mediate divorce cases. You can find out more about us at centraljerseyfamilylaw.com. Today, my guest is Stephanie Tang. She is a divorce and family law attorney with the firm of Cogard and Wilson in Chicago, where she recently became a partner. Congratulations, Stephanie. Thank you. She is an active member of the Illinois State Bar Association, where she will become the youngest and first Asian American chair of the Family Law Section Council next year. Again, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> Finally, she volunteers for the Chicago Volunteer Legal Services Chinese American Service League Legal Clinic. That is a mouthful. It is. <laughs> <laughs> on a monthly basis. In this role, she helps members of the Chinese community increase their access to legal services by translating and completing legal forms on their behalf, in addition to providing them with legal advice. There's so much more to know about Stephanie, but I would be here all day because her list of accomplishments and awards is so long. You can see for yourself what I mean if you go to is it Kogut? Am I saying this right? Kogut? <laughs> Kogutwilson.com, which we'll put in the comments and click on her profile and you can read all about Stephanie. You can also connect with her on her really wonderful Instagram account at The Chicago Divorce Lawyer. Thank you for being here, Stephanie. Thank you for having me. I'm excited it's, to be here. It's totally our pleasure. I'm so excited too. So I like to start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? So I was born in Dallas, but moved here pretty early on when I was around four. So I've been in Chicago since then through college and uh, law school. I've stayed in Illinois. So I went to Northwestern University for undergrad and then went to University of Illinois down in Urbana-Champaign for law school. Awesome. Um, I When I was uh, in undergrad, I really wanted to go to Northwestern Law School, but um I ended up, the draw to New York City was too strong. It was stronger than the draw to Chicago. Um, so I'm really jealous because that is a beautiful campus, like right there next to the lake. I love it. Yes. So how did you become a family law attorney? So I, when I was at Northwestern, I interned at the Carpels Legal Aid Organization's intake desk for uh, divorce clients. And Carbell's Legal Aid is a pro bono organization here in Chicago. They help give access to low-income populations through their hotline program and through their intake services at the courthouse here in Chicago. So my job as an intern was to sit at the desk to take people's information down and to help kind of corral them, for lack of a better word, to our uh, pro bono attorneys for help. And I think through that process, I really got to see the impact that 
our attorneys could have, even on a very short-term basis, maybe they'll only meet with them for 20, 30 minutes, but they could really help them fill out the forms, help them increase their access to justice. And they were so grateful for our assistance. And being able to see that personal impact was really touching for me and something that I was really looking for in my own legal practice moving forward. I love that. Now, whenever you were thinking about wanting to help people from uh, what you were seeing firsthand, how did um, becoming a trial attorney or a litigator uh, come into play? So I'm a litigator and a mediator. uh, And so I have seen both sides of the coin. Obviously, I don't, I'm not the type of attorney who will try to introduce conflict into cases where there shouldn't be conflict, but sometimes it does result in a trial. It does result in having to actually litigate contested issues. And then when in those circumstances, I do think that it is nice for me to be able to advocate for my client and really be able to stand up for kind of what they're entitled to under the law and be able to take what usually is about at least unfortunately like a year or two of litigation before then and culminate that into a full and comprehensive legal argument. Do you find that um, most of the cases that you end up taking to court to litigate really have no business being in court? I think the cases that ended up being going to trial are the ones that we've tried all we can to try to settle. Uh, in most cases, I would say probably 90% of the cases that end up actually going to trial, which is, again, only a very small percentage of my total cases, period, are the ones where they the parties are so adversarial. They've tried mediation. Uh, they've tried sitting down at a table at a four-way conference with their attorneys. They've tried to come to an agreement, and they just cannot reach an agreement on division of their assets or custody issues or what have you. So in those cases, I feel like the trial is really more of a means to an end at that point where they just need to have some closure and they just need to get out of court because it's honestly in their best interest to not continue to be intertwined and entangled in this litigation anymore. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, I think what you just said is that hits the nail on the head that, I mean, there are cases that are unique and present unique legal issues. Um, Those are, I think, in the very much the minority. Most of the cases that go to trial, um, I have the same experience you have, which is it's just two people that cannot set aside their emotions long enough to recognize that they should be compromising. and I, you know, sometimes what what's hard is when the other side is really, really being difficult, and you feel like you keep having to like push your client to compromise more and more. Um, it it do, it's really horrible. But you know, I just I think that there's so few cases that ever really should be um, tried because of the issues themselves. It's just usually because what yes. you were just talking about, they hate each other. Yes, I totally agree with that. I'd say my legal tribal issues are very minimal and my emotion-driven issues are much more in the majority of cases. Yeah. So what do you like most about uh, being a family law attorney? I know you've talked about, you know, basically uh, being able to help people, but what do you like most now that you've been practicing for a number of years? I really like that family law touches upon a lot of different fields in addition to just kind of divorce. I think 
one stereotype that people think of divorce attorneys is that we're just in court dealing with divorce all the time. And in reality, there's a lot of different other fields that come into play. I talk with real estate attorneys a lot, immigration attorneys, bankruptcy, collections attorneys, um, and just attorneys on all ends of the spectrum. I just talked to a tax lawyer this morning on one of my cases. And so I think something that I've really enjoyed is the breadth that family law has provided. I feel like coming out of law school, I wasn't necessarily sure. I wanted to pigeonhole myself in a very specific part of a statute, for example. Um, and I was really looking for something a little bit more broad where I can continue to learn and not just continue to learn about divorce, but also continue to learn about other fields of law. And I think family law has really allowed me from a lawyer perspective to be able to do that. So I really enjoyed that too. In addition to what I mentioned before regarding kind of seeing the impact I've had on people personally. Yeah, I agree with you. It's um, it, there's definitely it just intersects with so many different other areas. Um, it really is interesting. So, what do you not like about being a family law attorney? <laughs> Personal property disputes. Oh. I think are probably my uh, least favorite thing. Going back to what we were saying earlier, I think that's a very emotionally driven thing. And there, the statute obviously does not provide for division of your furniture for the most part. It doesn't say like you got to split your couch in half and saw it in half and one person gets one and the other person gets the other. I've had uh, litigation over tables, chairs, uh, things like that where uh, curtains most recently. So I think uh, just enable being able to get out there and try to argue for that. I just have a harder time advocating, I guess, um, when I think it's going back to what you were saying, it's not necessarily a legal triable issue uh, so much as an emotion one. So uh, sometimes I'm like, I feel like this could have been settled outside of court without the legal fees. And I really try to push my clients to do that. But sometimes the emotional toll of a piece of furniture is just too great on people. So you are so correct. Um, some people that are watching this um, will have heard this story before, but my my law partner and I, we actually met on a case as adversaries, and the two remaining issues that the party spent probably $5,000 of legal fees fighting about with us going back to court were a crock pot and a fishing pole. <laughs> I I've mean, had an air mattress. I've had... Uh, the unmentionable items that I shouldn't say live. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think the we def, uh, we've definitely had our share of uh, personal property things that I have had a hard time dealing with. And we've had lists and lists of things, not just like one or two in a given case that have been the, the remaining issue that's left to be divided. So it's definitely challenging. Have you ever had to actually go to a client's house to be part of the division of personal property? Yes. I, we do a post-it system sometimes where they literally walk through the house, put either uh, one color post-it or the other color post-it on an item, and then they walk through, and then everyone moves like one the green-colored post-its out the door to one spouse and the yellow-colored post-its out the door to the other spouse. We have two moving trucks there ready to go. Um, I've had that. I've had to go to storage units to do that. Uh, video inventory. 
I've done inventory lists back in my day as a law clerk. That was, I think, <laughs> when you start out <laughs> at a law firm, for sure, that's like your job to go and inventory the personal property <laughs> items. Uh, down to the spoons, the mixer, the blender, all the kitchen appliances. It's a fun time. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, sometimes being a divorce attorney is like running an adult daycare. I'm not mm -hmm. going to lie. Um, I mean, things, th some of this is just ridiculous. Well, thank you. Uh, well, that leads us today to our conversation today, which is really an issue that comes up a lot that sometimes does impede settlement and resolution of cases. You know, our country is a melting pot of cultures, races, backgrounds, and culture, you know, extends beyond race and ethnicity to other things, religion, uh, views on sexuality, sexual orientation, perceptions and expectations regarding marriage and family. I really want to know from you, I guess, if we can just start with, I know that there's an individualistic cultures out there and there's uh, collectivist cultures out there. What is the difference between the two? Can you just tell us a little bit? Sure. So to back up a little bit, and so as I said, I'm from Chicago, and Chicago is, as you can imagine, also has a lot of pockets of communities. Mm -hmm. um, so my passion about looking into cultural considerations in divorce stems from, uh, I personally speak conversational Mandarin, so I have a lot of clients in uh, the Chinatown Chinese community. And my partner, Eva Kogut, uh, is, speaks Polish. So she has a lot of clients in the Polish community. So I started kind of noticing these cultural considerations in my cases specifically, um, where I was like, is this, is there actually research on this? Is there actually something to back this up? And so that took me to, there's kind of a seminal study by two researchers at the University of Nevada, where they looked at 22 different countries and divided them into these individualistic and collectivist cultures. Um, and the individualist cultures are focusing more on self-discovery, self-identity, self-worth and personal fulfillment. Um, and they, the study found that those individualist cultures have a higher divorce rate, have a more favorable view of divorce as a means to self-fulfillment and getting themselves to the next stage in life. Uh, in contrast, the collectivist cultures, and I will say very commonly, we think of collectivist cultures as in like the East Asian cultures, Chinese, Indian, uh, very family-oriented cultures. They value more the family unit, uh, they value self-sacrifice for the greater good of the family and community. Uh, and there's a lot of stigma associated with divorce and there are a lot of social prohibitions against divorce within those cultures that pass down from generation to generation that have impacted um, the people who have then moved to, even if they're first generation or second generation, they still impact the way that they view divorce overall and how they view generally like the divorce process as well. So in those, you were talking about those views go down generation to generation. Do you find that it changes when there's several generations now that have been in America away from the actual countries where, um, you know, maybe grandparents came from or parents came from? Yeah, for sure. I think the first generation uh, clients that I have that moved directly from uh, one of these collectivist or individualist cultures, 
definitely embody that cultural identity the most. I think the second generation like myself and others who have kind of been in America, grown up in America, have less of that, but there's still that I think in every divorce case, regardless of your cultural background, you kind of talk to your friends and family and the people that you surround yourself tend to be of those cultural mindsets still. So there is definitely still that pervasive cultural kind of underlying notions there uh, with even within the second and third generation clients that I have. Yeah, um, I, I agree. I've, I've seen the same thing. One of the things that I've seen firsthand in our practice with certain uh, people, particularly from South Asia, is that uh, someone, particularly the husband, will have been here for you know maybe ten years working, and then they get married to uh, their wife who has who has been in another country and comes over here, doesn't know anybody, um, sometimes knows a little English but not isn't proficient. And after a couple of years, if the husband doesn't like the way that it's going, um, you know, they get a divorce, usually at that three-year mark, because they're, they're big on, uh, you know, immigration type stuff for whatever reason. And I, I find it very interesting because in those situations, the, the wife who has come over has these cultural, uh, we'll call it anchor Mm -hmm. really holding her down so that it's this divorce that's about to happen is even worse for her because she came over here to marry somebody and now she's getting divorced. And I'm kind of wondering if you've experienced this kind of fact pattern and how these cases sort of have been, um, you know, transgressing in your office. Yeah, for sure. I think that's very common. And I'll say that something that complicates that dynamic a little bit further is that there's an uh, what's called an affidavit of support that spouses sometimes execute in order to support their spouse uh, financially. And then in order to do that, they have to apply through, that's an immigration process where uh, they complete the paperwork necessary to show that they have the income sufficient to support their spouse. Their spouse comes over and then things, you know, aren't really going the way they plan, but that that spouse kind of financially is strapped because they're reliant and dependent on their spouse for sponsorship and uh, within the United States. So I think having, going back to what I was saying with in the intersection with other fields of law, that's when I point to immigration attorneys and we have to work kind of in tandem with them, which kind of complicates with the divorce process a little bit further as well. Um, in addition to kind of dealing with the cultural considerations within the divorce itself. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I know there's been a lot of circumstances where we've had to put a lot of detail into a complaint for divorce that we would never put into the complaint. Um, I don't know how it is in Chicago, but basically everyone gets divorced on irreconcilable differences grounds in New Jersey. Um, I mean, it used to be when I started practicing, you had to usually allege extreme cruelty because the other one was 18 months of, of separation. Mm -hmm. um, but in those, in these, some of these cases, I still find immigration attorneys telling me to outline pages and pages of detail about, you know, uh, ver mental abuse, financial abuse, physical abuse uh, for immigration purposes. And of course, I find that it complicates getting the divorce resolved. Have you had some of that similar experience? Yes, for sure. And so Illinois is a no-fault state, so the only grounds you can divorce on are irreconcilable differences. 
But I have had the same experience where the immigration attorney has said, can you insert these allegations to substantiate our claim on the immigration side? Because otherwise there might be an issue because they've been only together for X number of months since uh, the spouse came over to the United States. Um, in those cases, it is very challenging because if I put those allegations in, I'm looking at the responding party trying to strike the allegations in my petition for being irrelevant under the Illinois Marriage and Dissolution of Marriage Act, which is our kind of family law uh, statute here in Illinois. And so balancing those and trying to kind of explain to the client and the immigration lawyer in some circumstances that these are just not allegations I can necessarily make, or even if I did make them, they could be stricken from the petition anyway, um, is definitely challenging because those statutes just don't really reconcile with each other, the requirements for immigration versus divorce. God, I'm so jealous. I, I wish that we got rid of all of the grounds for divorce other than irreconcilable differences. I mean, we still have adultery, extreme cruelty, mm. um, all kinds of things, and people still use them. And those are typically the people that want to get that last jab in. You know, they want to get that little, you know, let, let their spouse know exactly how they feel about them. And what's horrible is in adultery, you have to actually serve the complaint on the alleged adulterer or adultery, it's adultery, right? Um, and so it's just, it's horrible. And I really wish we were, since we're, we're no fault too. Mm -hmm. I mean, fault does not come into play. Um, I mean, it, it, it might come into play in a very limited circumstance if it's very egregious. But other than that, I'm, I'm really jealous that you guys only have one grounds because I, Sometimes we have to explain to our clients why, okay, I realize that your husband cheated on you or your wife cheated on you, but we're not going to put that in the complaint because it's not going to get you anything more and it's just going to inflame the situation. So you don't have to have those conversations with people. So I'm glad. No, well, I still will have, I have to have those conversations kind of in the background, but I do have more of a ability to rely upon our law to say that we don't have any relief that can be granted under this law. And so there, going back to what you were saying, there's no reason for us to put these in there because it'll either be stricken or it'll just make the, your spouse angry, which will not help with the overall case at all. Um, but it's definitely conversations we used to have to have when <laughs> there were still grounds. Uh, we just became a one grounds irreconcilable differences state a few years ago. So this is still something that people who have friends who were divorced like 10 years ago come to us and they're like, my friend got a divorce on the grounds of adultery or uh, mental cruelty. And I want that. And I say, well, that's not the law anymore. So, um, uh, yes, the, the, my friend did this and my friend did that, or my <laughs> more favorite, I read this on Google. Yes. <laughs> Stop reading Google. Anyone who's listening to this, do not go to Google for legal advice. <laughs> It's so often wrong. Even, I mean, even if you go to attorneys' websites where you see a blog, um, I'm sure you've seen this. I read so many blogs. I'm like, that is not true. That's <laughs> wrong. Uh, <laughs> all kinds of things, um, particularly when a new law comes out, because not all attorneys are very good at reading um, case law and really understanding what the court actually ruled. 
Yes. Um, yeah. So, okay. So you represent a lot of people from uh, a lot of people in the Chinese community because you speak conversational Mandarin. So when someone comes in from that community, how do you usually approach their divorce? So I think a lot of the times I, there are a few things that I always specifically ask people in those communities because I know a lot of the times their assets tend to be also intertwined. So I'll say there's kind of two components of each divorce, right? The financial side and the custody side. So on the financial side, I'll always ask them, do you get money from your family abroad? And do you send money to your family abroad? And then do you have any assets co-owned uh, with your family members? Um, because it's important for me to understand the dynamic there. Uh, I don't know about New Jersey, but in Illinois, the law is very clear. The case law has been very clear as well. There's an Illinois Supreme Court case that says income is income from all sources. So if you get $1,000 a month from your family abroad, that's considered part of your income for purposes of calculating uh, child support or spousal maintenance, which I know is known as alimony in other states. So I'll say like, we need to make sure from the get-go that I understand that and that they understand that it's not just the typical what you think of income. So your employment income or income, dividend interest income, but also income from your family members. Um, on the custody side, so in Illinois, custody is now called allocation of parental responsibilities, which is oh <laughs> yeah, a fancy way of saying custody, but it's uh, designed to get rid of the stigma. But I think it just has added, personally, I believe it's just added a little bit of confusion. So there's allocation of decision-making responsibilities and then allocation of parenting time. So with the parenting time, for sure, when I have a Chinese client, I ask them, do you celebrate any cultural holidays? And that's the same with anyone of any religion as well, or just anyone in general. Do you have any specific family traditions that you want me to keep in mind? Is there something really important to you? Do you go back? Do you want to go back uh, to China or Taiwan uh, for a Chinese New Year, for example, and celebrate that? Um, do you want to make sure that you have the kids for a certain hour of the day? Because those are things that are not the standard uh, law, you know, Memorial Day, Labor Day weekend, uh, Christmas, Thanksgiving that I always ask. Uh, but just in addition to that, just knowing the family and then knowing what specific things that they hold near and dear to them for the past few years with their children that they want to continue, I think is very important for me from the get go to understand moving forward and preempting that in my kind of conversations with the opposing attorney. Because otherwise, if I don't understand that and I kind of let it slip until, say, we're on draft 20 and then my client finally tells me, oh, there's this cultural holiday that I want to introduce into the parenting agreement, I'll say, well, it's very difficult for me to say, like, now it just looks like we're trying to be petty, uh, which is definitely not the circumstance in 99% of the cases, um, but they just kind of forgot about it until the last minute. So if I can preempt that conversation and try to put that in the drafts from the beginning so that it doesn't come off as petty at the end, um, those are kind of the overall conversation topics that I have with uh, my clients who come in from those based on my experience um, that I see in a lot in the majority of my cases. Yeah. Oh God, I hate those 
you know, you're on your 50th draft and all of a sudden there's a new issue that never existed before. Um, I mean, one thing for anyone who's listening to this or watching this is when you go to meet with your attorney from the first day, you should be clear on what's what exactly you need and want. And, you know, if you don't really need something um, and you get to the end, don't be putting it into your agreement. Just don't because, you know, you're only going to potentially destroy the entire settlement. And, you know, I, I'm sure you do this too, but I spend so much time in the, in the last week or two before a case is resolved, just talking people out of having me go to the other side with nonsense. And it, it's nonsense from the standpoint of it's not really, um, it's not really material or important to the agreement. It's just something you want to put in because you want to get the last word in. And that's what I feel it always is. That, get the last step. additional parenting provisions for me that kind of get caught in the weeds. The who gets to take the kids to haircuts, whether who, whether the kids are going to be able to get tattoos when they're 14 or something like that, when the kids are currently only two. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, well, you know, this could change 12 years down the line. I mean, this is, unless you're really vehemently against this. Um, I, I, my personal thought is I always try to give clients kind of a list of all these kind of unique provisions from the get-go and then we just cross them off. If they don't apply, they don't apply. And I'll say, you know, they might seem minutia to you, but I've, I'm putting these in there in this list because I have had personal experience <laughs> in the past few years where I've had to litigate this case or negotiate this case or talk to uh, my client about this particular provision. And I want to make sure that we talk about it first before it becomes an actual issue later on. So that is brilliant, Stephanie. <laughs> I mean, it's brilliant. I've I actually have never heard anyone who has a list of, uh, of provisions that, you know, you go through with your client. Um, and I am going to steal that idea, uh, very openly steal that idea, because I think that that is a great thing to do. I mean, one thing that, um, my law partner and I are very big on is educating clients. So it's something I don't think enough attorneys do. When they first come into your office, um, you look. a lot of attorneys look at themselves as just an attorney, but you are also almost a teacher mm -hmm. of what, what to expect and what you should or should not be doing, you know, in the years that follow your divorce. I mean, there's a lot of attorneys, I'm sure you see a lot of them in Chicago, who the second they get divorced, it's like... I'm done. Goodbye. And really, that's a disservice to your client, regardless of what cultural background they come from, you know, to not educate them on things that could happen in their lives moving forward and what actions they should take based on all of those different um, actions. Do you do any kind of counseling? I'll call it counseling for uh, clients once they're divorced. Yeah, for sure. I think what we try to do as a firm is look over the uh, marital settlement agreement is what it's called in Illinois, which is incorporated into your final judgment. And the marital settlement agreement provides for all the financial stuff. So your spousal support obligation, child support, division of your assets and liabilities. And we look at that and say, okay, what are the next things that this client needs to do? Uh, if they need to sell the house, can I connect them to a realtor and a real estate attorney? Can I connect them to an appraiser um, to help them with that process? Because it can be very overwhelming to just kind of blindly Google professionals. Um, <laughs> if the person is getting a fair share of the assets and they were not the 
spouse that was in charge of the finances during the marriage, I'll say, uh, do you want me to connect you to a financial planner? And I always ask, you know, sometimes people already have these professionals in mind uh, from their friends or their own networks. But if they don't, I'm happy to provide them with those services and provide them with people because those are the people I network with on a regular basis as people as a coin going back to what I was saying originally that have related services to divorce. I'll say I just referred someone over to a clean air and asbestos person because they had to have their uh, house cleaned for asbestos issues. So it really can go all over the place in terms of like services. And I'm always happy to even if I don't know someone personally to ask um, someone for a referral as well. So if I can help that make that process easier, I will try to do so. Now, that's a great value added to all of your clients that you do that. Um, and it also goes to show um, that, like with all things in life, you get what you pay for. And um, you really do. If you want, there's a lot of people that really want to, you know, go very inexpensive in their divorce. And of course, there's two ways of going inexpensive. One is just to hire a cheap attorney who is cheap for reasons that will become obvious as you go through the process. But the other, the other way of having an inexpensive divorce is by choosing the right process itself, you know, and doing mediation at the beginning as opposed to going through litigation. But on the, on the side of the, the cheap attorney, you know, if you go to somebody and they're like, oh, yeah, I'll get you divorced for, you know, $1,000 or I'm going to only charge you, you know, like $150 an hour or something like that. You should have red flags going up all over the place that there's something wrong with this person. Um, and you really need to go to attorneys like Stephanie's firm that really handle uh, divorce and family law, not just as experts because they do it all the time, but also because they have a very uh, specific approach where they put the client first and they actually try to make someone's life better. I mean, you know, I we joke in our office that we're not just a divorce attorneys, we're professional problem solvers. And, you know, I just, I just, I'm harping on this a little bit because I feel like, um, and I don't know if you've experienced this, but I feel like I clean up so much mess from what people who really didn't know what they were doing did to clients. And now they have to come back because attorneys didn't put in very foreseeable things into agreements. Have you experienced that? Yes, for sure. And I'll say this, like with people who also try to do their own divorces from the beginning, oh, yeah. I think people have a misconception that all I do is kind of get people who are getting divorced and then I take them through the end of the divorce process. I would say a large percentage of my work is post-judgment work. So that means after the divorce decree is done, some loose end wasn't tied up in some capacity, whether it was the lawyer or the client didn't reasonably anticipate I'll say very commonly, one issue I have come up a lot is that a client really wanted to keep the house, but didn't talk to a mortgage broker before the divorce was finalized about their possibility of refinancing. They finalized the divorce, signed the papers, thinking that, that I'm just going to keep the house and be great. And then they talk to a mortgage broker and the mortgage broker says, there's no way you can get a refinance based on your income and your assets. Um, and there was honestly, there was no way that they were going to be able to afford to keep the house from the beginning, even before they were divorced. Um, and so I feel like that was kind of on the lawyer to have that, you know, hard reality conversation. 
and say, you know, you don't have the income to continue paying the mortgage or you don't have the income to refinance on the mortgage. So I don't want to set you up to fail because if I, even if I put this in the agreement, it'll make you happy in the short term. In the long term, you'll find out that you can't actually effectuate the terms of your agreement. And then you're going to be right back in divorce court again. And I hate to see when that happens. And even with best laid intentions, I can't always anticipate every single possibility down the road either. Um, but at the very least, if I try to have these conversations and connect people with these professionals early on, then I can try to avoid some of these more common issues like the refinance issue, like the like the cash flow issue and not really understanding the budget after divorce. So um, for sure, I've seen how ju bad judgments can lead to bad post-decree litigation. Yeah, absolutely. The, the refinance is definitely something that um, I see a lot of um, attorneys who don't really, who I, I, we call them dabblers in New Jersey. I don't know what you call them. People who dabble in divorce, I see a lot of it where someone's going to buy out interest and they just put that in the agreement, but there's no stopgap. There's no time frame for when they have to do it. There's no, if it doesn't happen, the house is going to be sold. Um, also, this is a great example, again, of your net, of your um, Rolodex, let's put it that way, of people you know, because, you know, one thing that a lot of divorce attorneys know are mortgage brokers who work with people going through divorce. So they know little tricks, like if you're going to be receiving alimony, maybe, uh, maybe the soon-to-be ex-spouse should start giving you a check every month for a couple mm -hmm. of months so that you have, you know, a paper trail. People who dabble just don't know those sorts of things, and they're just not going to be able to give you the same uh, level of um, of representation. And we totally went off the bandwagon. I just realized <laughs> something else. I, I think everyone's getting a lot of value out of this, but um, let's go back to cultural considerations for yeah. a minute. Um, so you said something earlier about in um, in your state, if someone's getting regular um, payments from you know, family members or whatnot, that's considered income. Let's go the opposite direction. A lot of times people will send money back to their countries. Um, how do you deal with that? Because I know uh, both as a mediator and in divorce cases, it's difficult because the, sp the other spouse that didn't send the money is like, well, hey, our marital money went back overseas. I want it back. How do you deal with that? So I'll say like the first issue in that is definitely tracing the monies that went back. So even before I can have that conversation, if say a client comes to me and says, I know that my spouse is sending money back to whatever country, I can say, okay, well, do you know how they're doing that? We can go through the, what's called a formal discovery process in Illinois, which is uh, asking for their bank records or um kind of cash transaction records and things like that to see if that'll show that path. But then sometimes the discovery doesn't kind of come up with that specifically and we need to result in a subpoena to whether it's a credit union or um, there's specific international transfer sites here um, or we have to subpoena them for the actual records themselves before we can even make that argument. I think that's the first obstacle because sometimes clients are like well why can't we just say he transferred ten thousand dollars i'm like well 
I don't have any records that show he transferred $10,000. So we need to get that first. Uh, once we actually get the paper trail, though, however, I think it's a matter of whether that's um, agreed up, that was agreed upon or whether it's considered dissipation. So in Illinois, there is a concept called dissipation of marital monies. And that's if you spend money on non-marital purposes, um, after the irreconcilable breakdown of your marriage, it can be considered dissipation of the marital funds and that it can be added back into the marital estate. So say you your spouse sent over $100,000 abroad and you didn't agree to that and it happened basically like your spouse found out that you wanted to file for divorce and he started funneling back money trying to deplete your marital assets. You can make the argument that that amount of money should be added back and then taken as a credit against uh, your spouse's share of the estate. Um, so that's one option I give to clients. Actually, again, once we are able to substantiate the actual funds that were transferred. Um, and then I think the other question, though, is to make sure that they, it was not agreed upon. I think a lot of the times there's a lot of he said, she said in divorce where the spouse says, oh, well, my spouse agreed that we could send money back to my family, um, but it was all like an oral agreement. Uh, and I always ask, is there something in writing? Was there a promissory note? Um, again, a lot of... There never is. <laughs> there's never there's never a promissory note. Uh, a lot of my clients in like the East Asian populations for sure never have a promissory note. They're like, we just send back money to our family because that's our cultural identity is that we were told that we needed to support our elders once we once because they supported us originally. And so they getting them over to that more Americanized concept where here we have loan agreements, promissory notes, we have to have those in order to substantiate that it's a loan or that there's money to be paid back. Um, it can't just be an abstract idea of like my parents paid for my college or my graduate school expenses. So now I'm paying them back in some amount that I think is fair or reasonable based on how much they supported me in the past. So uh, from a cultural perspective, I think that's definitely a conversation I've had to have with a lot of clients to explain that that's not sufficient to just say, this is a cultural thing and this is my cultural background and that's why I'm sending back money to my family. Yeah, I think that's the issue, right? Is that it might be a cultural issue, but you're getting divorced under the laws of the state here in the United States that you're living in. And Unfortunately, those sorts of um, cultural considerations really don't get taken taken into account all the time. I mean, I will say you were talking about after the irreconcilable breakdown of the marriage, you know, if, if you've been doing it for the last 15 years and you've been sending money every single month, I think it's hard to argue that, um, I think I always think it's hard to argue that your spouse should get money back because that's that's a lot more indicia of you doing something all the time. Um, and I would argue that's impl almost implicit agreement. I mean, if you let, let it go on for that lengthy period of time. So it's it's hard. I guess the bottom line is it's an issue that comes up a lot, particularly from with people from Asia in general. Um, they send back money frequently. The other issue that I wanted to ask you about, um, I see this come up a lot with my um, Indian clients is they almost always own property overseas. Yes. There's always something that's owned. Um, and sometimes it's sometimes it's not in their name. Sometimes it's in a family member's name, but marital money went to buy it. I want to, I want to hear your experience a little bit about 
uh, with this issue in particular? So I think with cross-cultural, the my first question is, is that a country that would give full faith and credit to a divorce judgment here? Because I have had experience in specifically with China, where we need to have two divorce cases, basically, where the property interests in China are adjudicated separately. And then we just reserve the allocation and the adjudication here in the United States judgment, because the Chinese courts won't give full faith and credit to the judgments that are entered here anyway. They just they're they're against their public policy or what have you. And so uh, if I know already from my experience that this is not a country that will adjudicate property interests there, I'll say the that it, the actual allocation of the property itself abroad should be reserved uh, in our the United States judgment. But then it can be taken into consideration, however, in terms of the actual split of the marital assets. So say, your spouse has a property that's worth $1 million abroad and you know that it's worth that and you kind of, you probably both agree that it's in that ballpark or it's substantial and your marital assets in the United States are only like $500,000. I think that's a strong argument to be made for the other spouse to say, I should be entitled to a larger share of the marital estate if you live in a state that does equitable distribution like Illinois, um, not in community property states where everything's kind of 50-50 regardless, but I'll say like that can go into the equity of uh, and fairness of a particular agreement. Um, and I've had judges also tell me that that's how they would handle the property, knowing that it's there and then knowing that otherwise they'd have to go and start a different, like a property allocation case abroad. Yeah, I think I think what you just said was so important from the standpoint of, you know, every state has different laws when it comes to these issues. And, you know, if you're somebody, even if culturally speaking, you're, you know, in your it's common in your culture to send money back to, you know, your parents um, or to your siblings or whatever, uh, it would not hurt you ever to go and speak with an attorney just to make sure you know what you're doing. I know people always think, well, if I go speak to a family law attorney, that's that's somehow um, I'm basically saying there's something wrong with my marriage. Whereas people just don't recognize, because I think you definitely have seen this, no one thinks they're going to get divorced. I mean, you know, you can go 10 years back from when people are getting divorced and 90% of them were very happy. They were, had a good life, whatever. And then something happens. It's the same reason for prenups. You have to tell people a prenup isn't because you want your marriage to fail. It's like an insurance policy. You don't get car insurance because you want to go get into a car accident. You get it just in case something, a freak accident happens. Um, and it's really important that if you're going to take money that you are earning, you're working your butt off to earn, you should make sure that you're that you're doing something that isn't going to come back later on to uh, bite you. I mean, if it's a little bit of money, if you're just sending, you know, a couple hundred dollars, fine. But if you're spending real money, you're sending, you know, five, ten thousand dollars a month, which I've definitely seen. Um, I wouldn't hurt just to talk to somebody. So at least you're not caught off guard later on. Do you, yeah. do you agree? Disagree? I, I completely agree with that. And I'll say that it also depends on the timing for sure. Like you said in your example, if you've been doing it for 10 years or so, and there's kind of kind of an implicit understanding that you'll just continue to do that. It's going to be hard pressed for the other side to make the argument that they didn't agree. 
But I had one case that did end up going to trial where my client spent $400,000 of the marital money buying a house for her father um, abroad. And so, and with that, the other side was able to kind of substantiate it. This was a month after the divorce was filed. And it was very clear that she was just trying to, uh, it became clear. uh, And there's a strong argument that she was just trying to buy this house and put it in someone else's name to say that it wasn't a part of the marital estate. And the judge still added it back into the marital estate uh, saying that it was marital monies, that even though it wasn't titled in her name, that it was clear that she took this money and kind of in bad faith transferred it out of the marital estate. So um, for sure, I would say timing wise too, just be careful with when you're transferring things, even if this has been planned for many years and you can say, you can point back to letters, what documents that say like, oh, dad, I'll buy you a house for your 50th birthday. And you've had this plan for a long time. If it comes like within the proximity of the divorce case, it can be argued that and it can look quite fishy to a judge that it wasn't for purposes of trying to deplete your marital assets. Yeah. And something that you said a minute ago that is I love to give practice uh, ideas for people that are listening. If you, if your parents are giving you a loan and you, and they're calling it a loan, maybe they're telling you, I may or may not ever make you pay it back, but it's a loan um, or an advance on you on, you know, your inheritance or something get it in writing just get it in writing it doesn't have to be drawn up by an attorney it can be something you type on a piece of paper and have notarized because you know you can make those arguments later on if you actually have something that qualifies as a loan document under the law then it's a loan and it's a marital debt and if you don't have that i can tell you right now it's not going to be a marital debt at least it won't in new jersey i doubt it will be in illinois no <laughs> I mean, I'll say, like, in addition to that, like, make payments on this loan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> say oh, you yeah. have a loan and then never make payments back on it, even though this loan has been outstanding for several years, um, because that's the times where our courts have found that those are not legitimate loans. If there's no evidence that there's any repayment being made on it um, from the accounts, even if it is a small repayment, like you can say you can't afford to make a full payment now, but if at least you're making good faith, regular payments on a loan, it's more likely to be held as credible (laughs) and an actual loan for purposes of like putting it on the balance sheet in your divorce. Yeah. And and I I bring, I bring that up in the context of um, cultural considerations in divorce, because, um, you know, in, in cultures, particularly Asian cultures, it's just so common as you've been discussing this entire time of a lot of money going back and forth between family members mm-hmm. and, you know, document it and, you know, keep keep a record just so you know. Uh, so later on, if, you know, unfortunately you end up in a divorce um, that you know, and it actually might not be your divorce. I mean, if you've got a sibling or somebody who you're giving money to, they might be going through a divorce and it will be very helpful for you to have a record of what you were giving them and maybe why. Uh, all right. The last thing I want to ask you about was if let's, we've been talking about, I think we've been assuming that the two people are in the same culture. What about somebody from, you know, a, an Asian culture who has married uh, you know, just a 
typical American who's not <laughs> from those cultures. Have you had any of those cases and have they presented any uh, interesting issues? Yes, for sure. I have. Um, and I think very commonly with that immigration scenario, for sure. Um, I'll say with those cases, it's really about educating yourself and also being sensitive to those cultural considerations. Um, something that I found a lot with my Asian clients is that they have a lot of shame and stigma associated with the divorce concept, and they really want to try to keep it out of the public eye. They want to try to keep it out of court. And in those conversations, if there is a difference in cultures between the two spouses, sometimes I do have to have that frank conversation with the opposing attorney and say, look, like my client really wants to try to mediate this, wants to try to just sit down at the table between all of us before launching everything into the public record, launching everything in front of other people, because they really value the opinions of their community, probably more so than your typical uh, client. So I like would really ask you to try to keep this in mind. I think in addition to that, just being aware of being aware and making your attorney aware of those cultural considerations is important. Like if you know that your spouse has held a lot of credence in their families and their opinions of their family, tell your attorney that so that they, we can kind of keep that in the back of our mind in terms of how we're going to approach the case. From a legal perspective, it likely will not impact how we go about our legal strategy, but from an emotional perspective, for sure. We can tailor our language in our letters so that it's softer. We can uh, kind of approach it from a softer angle so that it's kind of knowing that your spouse is going to go back to their parents and read this letter with them that, okay, no, it's not like we're trying to just screw you over or anything. Not that all of my letters are like that anyway, but I'll just say like, if I have that kind of background knowledge, it can help me give some context into how I should approach uh, drafting correspondence and drafting letters. Um, I'll also say like for my clients where there's mixed uh, cultures, I'll, I, a lot of the times family members want to get involved in their case. Um, and regardless of who you represent, whether you're from one culture or the other culture, the family members- Particular, Particularly if they're paying the bill. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but either way, they just try to call me anyway. Uh, <laughs> and so I think just kind of from the get-go, setting that expectation that I'm your lawyer. Um, if you want to sign a waiver of your attorney-client privilege, like, and you want your someone in your family to be involved, but that like, here's the implications of that. And I'm not just going to talk to everyone in your family about this letter that I wrote you or this legal strategy that we have. And similarly, I won't talk to your spouse's uh, family members about uh, the letter that I sent <laughs> your spouse's attorney. Um, and so I think like those two things for sure are things that I kind of keep in the back of my mind. And I tell clients uh, from the beginning of the case uh, based on my experience. Wonderful. Well, I'm not going to lie. We could talk about this stuff all day. But if someone wants to work with you in the Chicago area, I guess first tell us what areas you you actually represent people in and how would they contact you? Sure. So we represent uh, clients in Cook, Lake, and DuPage counties in Illinois. And if you'd like to contact us, you can go to our website, kogutwilson.com. So that's K-O-G-U-T. W-I-L-S-O-N.com. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram, as John said, at the Chicago Divorce Lawyer. Um, and otherwise, you can just give us a call or our emails are on the website. 
Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being here. I learned a lot from you and I'm sure everyone listening did as well. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. For more information, check out divorcehappyhour.com and please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. See you next time.